Heavenly Father, help me not to trust in natural ability, but only in you. For Lord, all is vain unless the Spirit of the Holy One comes down. Come Holy Spirit, as we pray that ancient prayer of the church. Come that we may all worship the Lamb, who is also a lion. Come Lord, that we may understand your word with our minds, and that we may be moved by it with our minds. And by your Holy Spirit, our spirits would be quickened, and we would be changed. For the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, we want to look at this church in Sardis for a moment. It's very important to understand what this church was in terms of where it was located. Sardis was the capital city of a man, I'm going to try to read the Greek here, Croesus. Croesus. Has anyone ever heard of Croesus? He is the man who minted the first coins. I like coins. I have a few coins. In fact, my rarest coin is a silver coin minted from the silver of the Jewish temple that was burned by the Romans in 70 AD. That's the rarest coin I have. And uh, I treasure it. I keep it in a, in a, in a safety deposit box at the bank. <laughs> I also have a rare gold coin. The oldest gold coin I have was minted by Justinian. Justinian was the Roman emperor. And remember, the Roman Empire did not end uh, in, in Italy. The Roman Empire continued on. And so Justinian took the Roman laws and he modified them by what? by biblical law. And the Justinian Code, even in Louisiana, which has the weirdest laws of any of the 50 states, the Justinian Code is the foundation of all Western law. So he took the biblical principles of the Hebrew Bible and the Greek New Testament and Roman law and codified them. And so Justinian minted coins too. And I have a gold coin. It is the oldest gold coin that I possess. Now, Croesus was the first person to be able to separate in an easy way gold and silver. And he was able to mint them. Research his name and you'll even see pictures of his coins. So Croesus was legendary as a very, very wealthy man. Wow, a very, very wealthy man. And this city, Sardis, where he reigned, was high up on a mountain, and it had sheer walls, and they were well protected, so they weren't afraid of being conquered. Now just imagine that. You're rich and you're secure. Think about it. Think about being rich and being secure. And that's Sardis. And yet they were conquered a couple of times in their history. In the ancient world, a long time before, 
But then they were conquered by the Persians under Cyrus the Great. Under Cyrus the Great. And you remember Cyrus the Great. He is the one that issued the decree that allowed the Jews to return to their homeland in 539 B.C. Later on, Alexander the Great conquered the Persians. And you remember that he is the founder of what we today call the New World Order. Because he had the dream to make everybody on the entire world, in the entire world, in the entire oikomene, inhabited world, to be a Greek. He wanted you and me to speak Greek. He wanted us to follow Greek culture, Greek drama, the Greek games, all of those things. Alexander the Great was the first person to Express that concept of a new world order where your civilization, your culture, your religion didn't count. He was the great persecutor through his generals who succeeded him of the Jewish people. Sardis was smart enough when they saw the boy coming to surrender to him. But they were conquered by one of his successors, Antiochus the Great. So two times in the history of Sardis, the city was conquered, probably because they were asleep. They didn't even think we need to guard the place. They can't get in here. It's kind of like Babylon. You know, when Babylon fell uh, under Belteshazzar, Babylon fell because they didn't think they needed to guard the city. It was so secure. But Cyrus the Great and Darius the Mede understood what they needed to do to conquer Babylon. They just needed to divert the water so they didn't go through the city anymore. And they just quietly went in underneath the gates. And they slaughtered people. There's a great lesson in that for us, isn't it? Think you're secure? If you are in God's will and trusting the promises of God, you are as secure as you can possibly be. But if you trust in anything else, you're a fool because the best defenses of human beings will fail. Do you see here in this text where he says that he's going to come at a time they think not? And he says in verse 2, Revelation 3, 2, Wake up! See, that's how I could preach 55 minutes. Wake up! Strengthen what remains and is about to die. This was a city that was sound asleep. And when they were sleeping, they weren't worried because we're so secure. Wake up. Because they were conquered twice while they were asleep. Now, a couple of other thoughts here. Imagine it. Such a wealthy city. Phenomenally wealthy. And you know what that brings? Ain't worried about nothing. Think about it. People trust in armor and armaments and missiles and this and that. And rivers that have great gates uh, preventing people from getting in. And sheer walls going up to the top of the hill. And they trust in money. They trust in money. Gold coins are a pretty good investment sometimes. 
But you remember under Franklin Delano Roosevelt, what happened? They confiscated them. You could not own gold unless you were a dentist or a jeweler or unless they were rare gold coins. My late brother told me that rare gold coins are a great investment because the government's never taken them. Well, at least not in this country. So, they're rich, they're secure. Now, what does that lead to? Look there at verse 1, the, the first uh, paragraph under the beginning. These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, the seven stars of the seven angels. What are the seven spirits of God? It's simply a way of referring to the Holy Spirit because the number seven means complete or full. And so the Lord Jesus Christ possesses the fullness of the Holy Spirit and he gives the Holy Spirit in his fullness to those who ask him. Now notice what he says here. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Let's think about dead churches for a moment as I remove my <laughs> not really gold watch. Dead churches. I think there are two kinds of dead churches. I think there are the unorthodox dead churches and there are the orthodox dead churches, and I'm not thinking of a particular denomination. Let's think about the unorthodox dead churches for a moment. If you will turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. And we'll read a little bit about an unorthodox dead church. 2 Timothy chapter 3. And look here at Verse, we ought to pick it up at the top, but I'm going to start at verse 5, page 1855. 2 Timothy 3, 5. This is an unorthodox dead church. He speaks here of leaders in this church as having a form of godliness, but denying its power. What does he mean there? I'm going to say that he is describing leaders very much like the leadership in many American churches today. How in the world did America get into the shape it's in today in 2021? You want me to tell you how? Mainline denominations have turned their back on the Bible. They don't believe the Bible anymore. They reject the Bible. Rejected wholesale, outright. That's why mainline denominations generally, not only are they no, are they no barrier to decadent, gross immorality, but they actually egg it on. And I learned that very early in my Christian experience. Unorthodox churches... Revel in ungodliness. Unorthodox churches revel in perversion. Unorthodox churches celebrate rejection of the Bible. I had, he's dead now, thank the Lord. I had a distant cousin who was a professor at the college from which I graduated. It was a denominational college 
owned or operated by the Southern Presbyterian Church, commonly called the Presbyterian Church in the United States. And my cousin was a professor there. One day, the Bible, he knocked his Bible off of his desk in front of the students, and he said, and I don't ever like to say it, G-O-D-D-A-M-N. He took the Lord's name in vain. My cousin took the Lord's name in vain. And people looked at him oddly and he said, that's no big deal. My cousin was put on trial by the old Senate of South Carolina for heresy. And they asked him, I'll omit his name, Dr. Blank, what do you believe about the virgin birth of Christ? And my cousin said, the virgin birth of Christ is a wonderful symbol of my faith. What does that mean? I don't know what it means. There's a symbol of the United States of America. There's a symbol of the Christian church. It's a wonderful symbol of my faith. Did my cousin, Dr. Blank, believe that the Lord Jesus Christ was conceived in the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary? Absolutely not. He was just slick. And he knew how to spin things. And he knew how to trick people, particularly ruling elders. And many of the teaching elders by that time just did not care. Because this was in the second half of the 20th century. So we're speaking here for a moment about dead churches that are unorthodox. And dead churches that are unorthodox are very much... Described here, listen to these words going over to verse 1, page 1854. And remember this about the last days. The last days began with the first coming of Christ and will end with the second coming of Christ. They're always part of what we are in, except they intensify greatly just before the return of Christ. Get that. They intensify greatly just before the return of Christ. So listen to these words. 2 Timothy 3.1. But mark this. There will be terrible times in the last days. Always been terrible times. But they intensify at certain times, and they intensify greatly just before the return of Christ. That makes me think that perhaps 2021 is the beginning of this terrible intensification of terrible times. Listen to what he says. Verse 2, people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money. Oh boy, like old Croesus. Boastful, proud, abusive disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, teacher, uh, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. If that doesn't describe the United States of America right now in 2021, I don't know what does. See, people reject tradition. I'm not bound by tradition. But if I have an approach that I forget the past 2,000 years of church history, I'm a fool. 
I'm not bound by that history, but I learn from that history. And what is tradition? That's what we deal with with our parents. America handed down its traditions from its parents. Grandparents didn't get thrown into gulags. Grandparents were taken care of in the home. Even when somebody became a little senile, they could shell peas on the porch. People took care of their own. And what happened? The values of the grandparents and great-grandparents were passed down to the children. They learned manners. I remember Daddy told me, he said, boy, get up! When an older person comes in the room, boy, take your hat off when you go inside. Boy, don't ever go into church with your hat on. I remember all those things. And when I was a little sassy, Daddy had a method of Pavlovianly conditioning me. He would simply unbuckle his belt and rattle the buckle. When I'd get a little uppity with Mama, I knew he'd rattle that belt buckle. That's called tradition. And it was passed down from father and mother to son to grandson to great-grandson and so on. What happened to the United States of America? A whole bunch of things that got invented in the 20th century. One was the mass production of the automobile with an internal combustion engine. Another was radio. Another was television. Who educates your children? Godless public schools? 1962, 1963, two Supreme Court decisions outlawed prayer, public prayer, and outlawed the reading of the Bible. What kind of fools did that? Fools who were hell-bent on destroying our country without knowing that's what they were hell-bent on. And they were hell-bent. Who educates your children? Worse than that. Television. Who educates your children? Cell phones. Are you aware of what children can access on a cell phone secretly? What's happened to America has happened. This godlessness has now transmitted itself and the people that we looked at as uncouth in the early and mid and late 60s are now the people who control things. This sounds like a description of the whole Western world without love, unforgiving, Unforgiving. You know, if you're unforgiving, you're going to go to hell. May I say it again? If you're unforgiving and you just dig your feet in, I'm digging my feet in, I am not going to forgive that person. You're going to hell. Jesus taught us to pray, Father, uh, Father, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He taught us that on the cross. But he also said in the Our Father, Forgive us our debts, forgive us our trespasses, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Unforgiveness is the mark of an unsaved person. Unforgiveness, stubborn, rebellious, I'll never forgive him, is a mark of somebody who has never really been born again. Do people hurt you? Of course people hurt you. People hurt people all the time. 
There, you know, we've been married now over 53 years. Have I ever hurt Sandy's feelings? Oh, yes. She ever hurt mine? I have to say from time to time. Last Sunday afternoon, we had a tire that started going flat. I sent this out on the, on the email list. And we finally, as we left St. Michael's, it started to show low pressure. And we, I kept monitoring it with my cell phone. I, I like modern gadgets. And when we cleared Treeport, it was getting pretty low. By the time we got about 20 miles below, 30 miles below Shreveport, I said to her, we better turn off. It's down to 22 pounds. It had gone from 38 to 22 pounds. And we got there and we tried to figure out they had moved where they put that little donut tire. I had to contact Conda. Where is my spare tire? And we're trying to fix it and repair it. And Sandy's over in the background praying, Lord, please send somebody. And God sent somebody. And he said, do you need help? And I said, oh, yes, sir. He got out and he changed that tire. And when he got the old tire off, stuck in the old tire was the broken tip of a box cutter. And when he pulled it out, the air really came out. And he refused money and his wife refused money. Because money is the answer to a lot of things. I always believe in tipping. And he said, no, 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 I can't do that. So I said to him, as he got back in his pickup truck, I said, well, Sandy and I like to pray for people. Can we pray for you? He said, yes, sir. I said, how can we pray for you? I get this. He said, I am a recovering alcoholic. This is really new to me. And I have hurt my wife so much in the past and there she is and there he is so we prayed earnestly there wasn't a dry in the house except we weren't in the house listen you are not going to be married very long till you've been hurt if you want to ruin a marriage choose never to forgive you'll just get stove up with bitterness it'll eat you alive it'll give you cancer it'll hurt you It'll do terrible things to you. I'm not saying all those things are due to bitterness, but bitterness triggers a lot. It'll rob you of your joy. So that's where we are today in America. Without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brooders, lovers of, uh, not lovers of good, treacherous, rash, conceited lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Do you realize in the modern Neo-Marxist movements that have come to dominate academia today, intersectionality, and many other things, you can never get forgiveness. You can never get absolution. You just got to keep groveling and groveling and groveling and they'll never forgive you because of your privilege. That's what we're up against. And you see this right here in verse 5. Having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. We have a church. It says Christian out in front, but there isn't anything Christian about it. They deny the Bible. You remember that Jim Jones character? Jim Jones was written up. I remember reading in 
It was the great conservative uh, news magazine. And they called him a fundamentalist. There wasn't anything fundamental about Jim Jones. He was an ultra-liberal. He denied the gospel. He denied the Bible. One day he took the Bible and he threw it out of the pulpit. And he said, too many of you have your eyes on this rather than on me. He was a liberal. I'm not talking about the classic meaning of the word, which has to do with freedom and generosity. I'm talking about people that reject any kind of absolute standard of truth. Yet it was called the People's Temple. They were visited by the President of the United States and his wife because they did such wonderful works as they seized everybody's Social Security. As they decided to go down to South America, as he decided to murder over 900 people by poisoning the Kool-Aid. And he even killed a U.S. Congressman, Jim Jones. Don't drink the Kool-Aid. Now that's one kind, one kind of dead church. Look at what he says. Verse 6, they are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over weak-willed women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning but never able to acknowledge the truth. If you look behind cults, most of them are filled with immoral, wicked men. Joseph Smith, Brigham Young. You can go down a list. They're filled with immoral men, immoral people. So that's one kind of dead church. It is unorthodox. Let's look at another one. Let, turn with me, if you will, to page 1882, James chapter 2. This is an Orthodox church. This is a dead Orthodox church. James chapter 2 and verse 14. Listen to what he says. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well... Keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs. What good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. 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 This is a church. There's no question about its orthodoxy being exposed here. The question is, it was a dead church because it did not put its money where its mouth was. What is God interested in with his money that you happen to be given a little bit of stewardship over? Is he interested in building bigger buildings? The first century church didn't have buildings. They met in homes. What is the generosity in view in James? It's generosity to the poor. Listen to how he describes it. Look over here at, at, at the beginning of this chapter across the page. Turn it to James chapter 2 and verse 1. My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes. I got on a seersucker suit and I just took off my wedding band. 
And a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you have insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. Wow, 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 wow. Wow, wow. Guilty of breaking all of it. You mean that if I... Let's look down here. Do you mean that if I don't commit adultery, don't murder, but I discriminate against poor folks in God's eyes, I'm guilty of breaking the whole thing? Isn't that what he says? In other words, what does God demand of you and me? Nothing less than entire perfection. In every point. Well, you say, oh, Bob, you know better than that. No, I don't know better than that. The law is designed first and foremost to kill me, to slay me, to break me, to show me that nothing in my hands I bring simply to thy cross I cling. Because by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified. That doesn't mean we throw the law out. That doesn't mean we say forget it. It means that we should try to keep the law in the power of the Holy Spirit with the Lord Jesus as the ultimate model. But that's what's in view here. Now notice what he says. In the context of all of this, he's telling us something. And he says this. Someone will say, verse 18, James 2, 18, You have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, I'll show you my faith by what I do. You believe there is one God, good. Even the demons believe and shudder. You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? Verse 22, you see that his faith and his actions were working together, and by his faith he was made complete. That's the problem the church in Sardis, their works were not complete. Their faith was not complete. His faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. Now I want you to listen to me very carefully. James chapter 2 is a passage of scripture that many people get hung up on. I'm going to give you a pithy way of understanding it. You and I, if we're going to heaven are justified, that is, we are declared righteous by means of faith alone. 
That's what we believe. That's what all Bible-believing churches hold to. We are justified. That means we are declared righteous. It has to do with being in a courtroom. In the courtroom, the judge says to the chairman of the jury, the foreman, what have you found? We find the, the defendant not guilty. Now, he may be as guilty as the devil himself, but when the foreman comes in and gives that verdict and the judge accepts it and hits the gavel, he's declared innocent. Justification in the Bible is a forensic act. It means it has to do with a courtroom. It means that God not only declares you innocent, not guilty, but he declares you righteous based on Jesus' passive obedience by dying in your place and his active obedience keeping the law fully in your behalf. Now, hear this again. You and I are justified by means of faith alone. But our faith is justified by means of our works alone. Let's say that again. You and I are declared righteous by God by means of our faith alone. But our faith is declared to be righteous or true or sound by means of what we do alone. In other words, we're saved by faith alone, but by a faith that is never alone. Now, what are the works that are in view in James chapter 2? It's not being a good boy. It's not never cussing. It's not never drifting from the moral law, never having committed adultery, never having murdered anybody, never having... You know what it is? We are right with God by a faith in Christ alone, but a faith that is never alone. If you're saved and you know it, then your life will surely show it. You only really believe what you act on. Someone has supposedly told this story years ago. Someone went across Niagara Falls uh, on a tightrope. And supposedly he, he then got a wheelbarrow that didn't have the tire in it, but the, the wheelbarrow front part of it uh, went down and grooved on the thing, on the rope. And the tightrope walker said, how many people here believe that I can take somebody across Niagara Falls in this wheelbarrow? Oh, yeah. We believe it. And he said, well, let me get, get a volunteer. The point is you only believe that which you act on. You're not justified or declared righteous based on your acting on it. You're justified or declared righteous solely by your faith in Jesus Christ. But your faith is declared to be right faith by your works alone. And we will suspend it there uh, because I no longer preach 55-minute sermons. And we'll pick it up, God willing, next week. Let's pray. Lord, as we ponder this rich, very secure church on high up on this hill that seemed to be impregnable, this church that was located in the city of the king 
who was the first to be able to separate gold and silver and mint gold coins. They were so prosperous, so secure to the outward eye, but inside, Lord, they said things and they never carried through on their promises. Lord, would you grant that each of us here would trust in Christ alone for salvation and by the power of the Holy Spirit attempt to bring forth the evidence of a true faith by how we live. Lord, it's not the negative side, not doing this, not doing that. It's serving others. It's washing the dishes for our, our wife. It's cleaning up behind our husband. It's taking care of little children and grandchildren without complaining and bitterness. It's taking in the stranger after we pray for protection and giving them a place to stay and a meal. Lord, those are the things that give evidence to a true and lively faith. Lord, would you deliver us from being the church of Sardis? In Jesus' name, amen.